everybody, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Medium Cool Pod. That is facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, and we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. And hey, if you are, wherever you're listening to this, please like, subscribe, follow, whatever the thing is, please do it. Leave us a rating, leave us a review. All of those things help, and we really appreciate you. Today is uh, bittersweet because, you know, I didn't get a chance to actually get enough content to create an entirely new episode. So I thought instead of just trying to do like a half-assed episode for this week, I will just finally replay part two of Greg Bennett because I replayed one at the end of last year. And I thought, I'll I'll replay two because Greg's awesome. I'm going to have Greg on again sometime this summer, hopefully, uh, if we can work out our schedule stuff. And, uh... I just thought that that would be a really good episode to play here, just to kind of follow up with the last replay. But that's neither here nor there. The point is, this is going to be an episode you may or may not have heard. If you haven't, I encourage you to go back and listen to part one. That was episode 10, and we also replayed it uh, at the end of last year. If you just scroll through our episodes, you'll find it. But again, episode 10 is Greg Binnick's part one. And then this is actually episode 11. So this goes way back, like... 75 or 76 or whatever uh, episodes ago. Uh, so you have a, a young baby Austin podcasting very early on uh, and talking to my friend Greg. Uh, but we're going to have some fun stuff. I plan to have uh, my friend Lisa Ermel on sometime soon. She is an actress. We've done short films together. Uh, she's really great, but she's also, uh, you know, she identifies as part of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, so we're actually going to do a little bit of pride on this show, uh, but we're going to do it a little late because of how crazy and and uh, hectic my schedule's been this month, um, and this being Pride Month still, we're actually going to basically, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to normalize Pride, and we're going to talk about it all year, right? <laughs> it doesn't have to be one month. Why do we have to stop now? So uh, we're going to talk about uh, some really cool stuff, again, both just like her journey and then a different episode on uh, pro- basically LGBTQ plus Pride films, um, not... not exclusively that, but either films made by someone of the community uh, or, um, you know, a a film basically either about the LGBTQ community having characters uh, depicted or that are a part of that or films made by them. All of these sorts of things. We're going to talk about that. That'd be fun. Um, I also plan to just completely crap all over the Supreme Court and do some sort of uh, pro-choice episode because, you know, fuck the Supreme Court and all of this overturning Roe v. Wade shit. Uh, If you disagree, don't email me. You're stupid. Uh, But aside from that, though, uh, the the thing is, though, uh, we have a lot of stuff coming up. Also, so I'm, I still plan to do the Hitchcock Marathon. It's probably going to be a little later this year. Uh, we're going to do that, though. I'll have JB on for that. Again, that was supposed to start this summer, but then he moved, actually. He and his wife, and they moved over to uh, Jake's Neck of the Woods. Jake Bottelieri has been on the show. And um, so I kind of gave them a break for a bit, get settled, hang out in the house, get you know just get comfortable. We will pick up that marathon later. So that's what we will do. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff going on. You know, I, I actually just, uh, I'll tell you guys what I've watched in this 80s marathon since last episode because it's like kind of turned into a uh, a common thing now. Uh, but anyways, I, I, I uh, think I talked about Caddyshack last week, if I'm not mistaken. I forget if I watched uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark before last episode or not. Um, I may have talked about it. But either way, I have now watched the Indiana Jones trilogy. So, Really uh, looking forward to talking about that. I might have Joe on to talk about that trilogy sometime. Just because it's fresh in my mind, it'd be fun to talk about. 
And I also watched John Woo's 1989 film, The Killer. This was my second time seeing this. I had watched it the first time probably 13, 14 years ago, something like that. I don't know, probably around uh, maybe 12, somewhere around 2010, probably, give or take. And uh, yeah, dude, that movie's awesome. I mean, it's 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 wacky, <clears throat> and it's it's funny at times, uh, but man, it's awesome. I love that stuff, man. I, I, I often hate John Woo's shit in the U.S., but man, his Hong Kong stuff's awesome. Anyway, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna watch some more John Woo stuff soon, some more Hong Kong cinema, some Jackie Chan, you know, police story action, you know, stuff like that here soon. But uh, th- those are the movies I've seen since. We had a busy weekend, which is a big part of why I didn't get. Uh, into watching stuff for the for the podcast and uh yeah there's just a lot of stuff going on so I've, I've watched five movies uh but you know what that's five more than i had before so you know i'm happy about it another thing too is i have some movies coming up that i'll be able to talk about in 2022 and pretty soon uh i will be hitting those as well i don't know when i'll talk about these but i'll probably try to fit them into episodes coming up for example crimes of the future the david cronenberg film i plan to talk about uh, I plan to talk about the Alex Garland film Men. Uh, I want to talk about uh, Cha Cha Real Smooth, which was a big Sundance hit last year um, and finally got a release this year, as well as Flux Gourmet, the the uh, gentleman Peter Strickland, uh, who made The Duke of Burgundy. He made Fab, uh, In Fabric which I still haven't seen in fabric, but I've seen uh, the Duke of Burgundy. Flux Gourmet looks really wild, um, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. I also uh, have an opportunity to see, or had the opportunity to see The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, starring Nicolas Cage, um, and it's uh, directed by Tom Gormican. I'm going to watch that soon and talk about it. There's a bunch of fun stuff coming up that I'm going to talk about that we're going to be doing. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, but for the time being, I'm going to go ahead and jump into the part two of the Greg Binnick episode. This is from episode 11. I hope you guys enjoy. Like we talked about last time, um, you're a juggler. No. Uh, so you, um, you're really into Ernest Becker, okay? And we're, I'm not trying to get into uh, Becker again, though I'm happy to go there at all times. But um, this seems to have influenced a lot of your, not only your work, but your philosophy your, on life in general. I mean, Becker seems to have been based on either other interviews that I've seen you do or like conversations you've had um, or your work. Would you say it's fair to say that Becker has been uh, a, an extremely strong influence on your worldview? Yeah, and here's what's interesting about Becker and my relationship to the work. So as I've been writing his biography over the last few years, which has been a big project um, for me, as I've been writing his biography, I realized how much he kind of stood on the shoulders of the greats who had come before him, in a sense, in that he was synthesizing information as well as coming up with some of his own. So for many years, I thought, wow, this guy, Ernest Becker, he had all the answers. But if Becker was sitting here with us, he'd be like, please don't. I didn't have all the answers. I was synthesizing other people's ideas and kind of adding my own twist to it. But he was really just trying to come to an understanding of why we behave the way we do. Where do we get our power from and where do we give our power? And what is the effect that our fear of our mortality has on us? He's known for the death part. 
because he won yeah. the, Pulitzer, the Pulitzer Prize for a book called The Denial of Death. But he was really writing about what does that signify? And it signifies a loss of power or control ultimately. And while he didn't write that in his books explicitly, that's really what he was getting at. So as time has gone on, his ideas have become more and more important to me the less and less I adhere to him as the guy, if that makes sense. If we were doing this interview 15 years ago, I would have talked about Ernest Becker as if he was Jesus or the Buddha. But now it's not like that. Now I'm like in a relationship with this guy, essentially, even though he died 50 years ago, by way of writing his biography and thinking his thoughts and seeing his process. And he really was, uh, he was getting at a synthesis of a vast array of ideas. And that's what I find fascinating about it. Yeah, I, you know, one thing that I love about doing research is <clears throat> it's like the first time in grad school where I was asked to write like a 20-page paper. And in undergrad, you do five to seven pages, maybe 10. You know what I mean? And it's like, how do you even write that long? And then knowing that my thesis was going to have to be like 100 plus pages, how do you even do it? And then the more articles you read and the more you start to understand how structure works, the more kind of tangible it seems. And the same thing with thinkers. So whenever I would read someone, I remember I read Frederick Jameson, who was a postmodern guy, and that's what my film thesis, when I was uh, getting that set up, uh, I was focusing on postmodern theory. And Frederick Jameson was a guy uh, that was talking about all of these really big ideas and about how uh, mediums like cinema can change historicity, meaning um, if they are, I was dealing with war movies, so... Um, you know, if someone decides to show war in a certain way where these guys are the, uh, like unequivocal bad guys and we're the good guys, you are writing a story, you're writing a narrative, right? And in that narrative, you can actually change historicity, like how we interpret history by painting it a certain way, right? Um, so I say all that to say, I'm like sitting here reading Jameson and I'm like, this dude is awesome. Like, I love the way he's thinking. I love how he's tying all these ideas in. His book is dense as fuck, but like, I'm getting through it. You know, that whole, like, I might not understand all of it, but I'm getting like the key things here. I get it, right? Um, and then I find out that like, all he was doing is essentially building upon the work of Jean Baudrillard, which was like this guy that came a generation before, right? But what I find uplifting about that type of work is um, it makes me feel like I can do that too. Right, like, it. 100%. You know what I mean? Like, because you start to see, oh, 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 they weren't really creating a planet of knowledge. They're contributing to an already existing planet of knowledge. Do you get what I'm saying? Um, Absolutely. And, and, yeah. and then the same thing, I'm not transitioning yet, but the same thing goes for like film too. You know, I might see like a super intense, fairly abstract, but incredibly beautiful and artistic film and be like, this person's a genius. No one could ever do this but this person. And then you dig deep enough and you find the, the four films that inspired this one. And it's like, oh, he just put those four together. That's how that worked. Got it, you know? So in Art and Artist, the book that inspired Ernest Becker so immensely, uh, and it's a book by Otto Ronk. It's like I said in our uh, earlier half of this interview, it's, it's almost inaccessible. This book took me... 19 years to get through. Yeah. The epigram, the quote that begins chapter three, is a quote by uh, Goethe, the German thinker and philosopher. And it says, What am I myself? What have I done? All that I have seen, heard, 
noted, I have collected and used. My works are revered by a thousand different individuals. Often, I have reaped the harvest that others have sown. My work is that of a collective being, and yet it bears Goethe's name. What he's saying there is that everybody else's ideas have been synthesized through him and have become Goethe's ideas. Yeah. And Rank, Otto Rank is using that quote as inspiration because Rank realizes it too. And Becker got inspiration from Rank. He realizes it too. You know, we are, you know, there's a guy named Rudolf Otto. Um, you know, I, I don't even need to go down a crazy <laughs> road of philosophy. I'm going to stop myself before we get too nuts. But I will say this, that, that Otto Rank made mention in one of his books in a book called uh, Truth and Reality that we are the temporal representatives of the cosmic primal force. I'll say it again because it doesn't even sound like English. Temporal representatives of the cosmic primal force. What he meant was we are the inheritors of all the information, all the energy, everything that has been. We are that representative. If that isn't the most empowering thing I've ever heard in my life, I don't know what is. Meaning as you sit there, you are the temporal, the immediate current representative of the entire cosmic primal force. That means all the films, all the energy, all the love, all the hate, all the war, all the peace, all the religion, all the apathy, all the agnosticism and, and anarchy and atheism and all of it is within you. Which direction are you going to go? You are not the creator of all of that. You are the representative of that collective energy and those ideas. So I think that we often will put people on pedestals and when we do, we disempower ourselves and we abstractly empower them too much. And I think it's important for us to all realize that we are all temporal representatives of cosmic primal forces and whatever other forces we want, whether it's our involvement in hardcore we're the current representative of that too. What will we do with that? Um, and it's so easy to think, well, I'm not contributing anything purely original. What is what is my voice? Just speak, use that voice and something will come of it or just create the film, even if it's derived from Ocean's Eleven. Like it doesn't matter. Just like do it, you know, <laughs> make yeah. it happen. You know, you, when you watch Seven Splinters in Time, the film we talked about earlier, Gabriel Jude Weinshell's film, he literally directly lifts from his inspiring artists for, for his work. And yet it's original in his own way. And Becker did the same thing. And, and, and I'm glad we're talking about this because, you know, as I, yes, co-wrote and or, or wrote and produced Flight from Death with uh, Patrick Shan of Transcendental Media in California. And while trial songs have been inspired by Becker's work, and yes, I'm writing his official biography, it would be easy to make the jump and be like, wow, I'm, I've, got, I've probably got an Ernest Becker tattoo as well couldn't be further from the truth. Quite the opposite. I've gotten more and more in touch with a guy who was doing his very best. Yes, of course, to matter and to stand out and do something significant, but really to understand why humans behave the way they do and what's the root of human violence. And I think if we look at any one of our heroes, we're going to find the same thing. You know, everyone's into the Mandalorian. I love it like it's a religion at this point. But at some point, <laughs> 1971, George Lucas is sitting around going, I should make a space movie. And then six years later, Star Wars comes out. You know, it, it, the idea came from somewhere. It wasn't the first time a human being thought I should make a space movie. People have made space movies. He just put his own twist on it. And he even lifted throughout that movie on so many movies that had come before. Anyway, 
point is, everybody, go make a movie that's as cool as Mandalorian and send me a link. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> Dude, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And I, I want to stick on this philosophy thing just for, for a few more minutes because I think Take it honestly does tie in to – no, this doesn't directly tie into film, and nor do I care. But my point is that philosophy, though, how we perceive the world or, or things does affect how we interpret or perceive movies or, or any art or any medium. So, you know, um, this goes back to the beliefs, attitudes, and values things so that we talked about in the first half of this where, you know, if if my grandfather, who has a very sheltered life, who is a... Uh, like born again, um, you know, uh, Pentecostal ideology believer, okay, Christian, uh, evangelical, conservative, the whole deal, right? Grew up in um, Kentucky when he was a little boy, lost his dad when he was like two, didn't even have a, a, a toilet. They had like an outhouse with like a hole in the ground or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I totally. learned, yeah, like it's like you, you, you show him a movie, say, say you show him something like Pulp Fiction, Oh my gosh, God forbid, so much profanity, right? Um, sure. And then I watch it, and I don't give a fuck. So like, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I'm just like, you know, I'm watching this, and I think it's brilliant, and he's going to watch it and get something completely different. Why? Because of our beliefs, attitudes, and values. They differ. They're different. Yeah. What I find really interesting, though, going back to what you were saying, is it's like pulling back the curtain and seeing the wizard, right? To use a Wizard of Oz reference. But it's like pulling back the curtain, the more you dig into people that you admire or that you that you find to be brilliant minds, I think there are only a handful that you might not be able to unpack. You know what I mean? Mm, that's <laughs> you know interesting, what I mean? Right? Because, yeah. But I find the people that you can unpack so much more um, interesting. To stick with religion and my grandfather, for example, I went to a Bible college, believe it or not, in 2004, okay? Just for a year. It was not for me. But uh, I went to a Bible college. There was a class called Life of Christ, Okay, and the entire point of it was to look at Christ as man, not as 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 some uh, sentient God being, right? But like as man, not the divine, the human. Um, that changed my entire perspective on how we live as human beings. You know what I mean? Uh, I am so far from an evangelical <laughs> these days, whereas I was then. Um, you know, I, I have I have carried some of those beliefs, but they're so progressive and different <laughs> uh, that I don't even know if you could call me a Christian by traditional standards. But my point is, one thing that I've carried through was that Life of Christ class. You know what I mean? Because is, it yeah. te- because it almost looks at Christ as a philosopher. And I think philosophy is actually really important, and I think it's an overlooked thing in school, much like a lot of the arts, where it often gets like pushed aside because it's not like math or it's not science, or which these things are important in their own right. Um, but things like psychology and philosophy and the arts and these different things have different effects on our society that are just as important. And there's a reason that they were there in the first place. And I think f- philosophy is one of those uh, uh, subtextual, little subtle. Um, ones that's just as important as anything else because it does frame how we think, feel, and behave the same way that uh, you know studying psychology will do the same thing, but it's a different side of the mirror, so to speak, you know. Um, and so I don't really remember where I was going with that, but philosophy is—I'm uh, so down. I want—we should just do a bonus content sometime where we just talk philosophy. <laughs> 
And any time. I mean, all this stuff is important. I mean, philosophy is, you know, it's tricky, right? Because it's not seen as a hard science. It's not empirical. So oftentimes it gets cast aside, you know, because there's no uh, mathematics to support the contentions. There's no tests oftentimes to support these contentions. And, and Becker, just as an example, during his life received a lot of critique because he was a book guy. He just, he sat and read books and then wrote books based on the books that he was reading. And he wasn't in the field doing field research per se, but you know, it's, it's important to remember that there's a historical precedent for thought to result in truths. Um, Einstein talked about it. Uh, there was a speech Einstein gave in 1933 and I can't pull up a direct quote off the top of my head, but he talked about the fact that, that, that thought can produce truths, that we can get there by way of thought instead of getting there by way of hard science, testing, laboratory experiments, et cetera. Philosophy still falls under that realm of this is not a hard science with experiments and therefore it's not as valid as physics because if I drop this pen, physics tells me exactly how fast it's going to fall, how hard it's going to hit when it hits, you know, on and on and on. Philosophy doesn't necessarily do that, but it it has just as much value and it just is it, – it, it acquires its results in a slightly different way or a substantially different way. But regardless, it's still valuable. Don't you – so we're getting into just like personal ideas here. But don't you feel like there is – let me restart that statement. When I started in my undergrad and I, I, I was older than everyone else and I, I my daughter was born like at the beginning of my sophomore year um, and I was married to my uh, first wife at the time – and uh, I was studying. I wanted to be a film professor. That was my thing. I loved movies. I, I fell in love with them in 2003. And from there, it was all like independent study on my own time. And then I studied in school for like way too many years. <laughs> and, um, but when, when I was in there, I, I gravitated more toward my professors than students because they were like 18, 19. I'm like 24, 25. And I had a daughter and I had a house. And, you know, like, I, I was in a different place. I didn't want to be in the dorms. I didn't want to drink. Like, I don't know. I just didn't want to, like, do these things that all of my peers seemed to want to do. Except for play D&D. &D. We, we did that quite a bit. But <laughs> um, but anyways, I'm, like, hanging out with some of my professors. And I remember one of my uh, – she was my committee chair in grad school. Um, she said – I think this was her. She said, remember that – undergrad is really less about you being a master of whatever your major is, but it's ultimately teaching you how to uh, critically think, how to write those critical thoughts down um, uh, articulately, and how to speak those thoughts articulately, or articulately. And wherever your major is, you're ultimately exercising that within the area that you want to do it, right? And the more I thought about it, and especially once I started teaching in higher education, I started to realize, like, yeah, all these are the same thing. Every other class is the exact same class. We're just focusing on this different information. Now, of course, nursing, a little different. Math, a little different. Maybe business has some difference. But ultimately, you're still learning how to critically think, how to speak and write that within your area. So when I think about that, and I think about getting rid of things like philosophy, which is inherently just critical thought. <laughs> like that's basically what it is, right? And it's forcing you to, you know, think about these things like Becker thought about that maybe we don't want to think about, which I think is a lot of what he was doing. But like, don't you think that that affects how we as a society critically think at this point in general by eliminating the importance of these things? 
Oh, you I get think what I'm so. saying? Abs- yeah, abs- absolutely. Well, I mean, here's here's a thought on that. And, you know, we can venture off the deep end with this, but I think that the deep end is important to jump off at this point, given where we're at in our country. When people are not uh, thinking critically, when people are not thinking critically, uh, they tend to uh, not uh, – let me say this differently. Education historically produces voters who vote more liberal. And given the circumstances that we're under in our country right now with the ending only term of our proto-fascist nightmarish pseudo-president, it makes sense – that education and critical thought would be pushed down and pushed to the side because they, and I don't want to be abstract, so I'll specifically say the powers that be in the White House and the people who push Donald Trump and arguably Donald Trump, even though I see him as a, a puppet essentially, yeah. they know that uh, the, the less educated people are and the less critical thinking people are, the more likely they are to vote for the Republicans to keep things as they are, the conservatives who maintain the status quo, because change requires figuring out what we're going to change to or toward or into. So, you know, getting rid of critical thinking is 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 kind of a nightmarish situation. And that doesn't mean that everybody needs to read philosophy, because there's some philosophy which doesn't make a damn bit of sense. Go try to read George Hegel and come back to me and tell me that you understood one sentence. I certainly couldn't do that. I couldn't <laughs> tell you that I understood one sentence of George Hegel. Yeah. Um, but there's some of it and the concepts overall, which are accessible. And I think it's the responsibility of people who understand this stuff to share it with others who maybe don't, or to have conversations so that we can all come to greater understanding and begin to think critically the way that your teachers were telling you to do in your undergrad, because it makes for a better a better society. It makes for a better population. It makes for a better educated, just array of human beings. And, you know, then we could get into a conversation of, is it better to stay the same and stay the course or have a constantly malleable changing society? I think, I mean, maybe it's just my bias from being in the mayhem we've been in for the last four years to have it change. But regardless, I would rather have people have the freedom intellectually to be able to adapt and change if they wanted to, then not. That's me parroting Ernest Becker almost directly. His whole focus was on individuals having academic intellectual freedom to pursue ideas. He saw it as essential for the development of the individual and society at large. So yeah, when we think less critically, I mean, there's tremendous problems there both politically and personally. It, it kind of bums me out thinking about something like even hardcore, which we've both been a part of, um, or, or film, uh, the, the critical thinking aspect, kind of tying it into these other arts as well. It kind of, it kind of like hurts my feelings because, you know, when I was in barricades and I was playing with bands and, and I don't have anything bad to say about any, like, I don't remember ever meeting a band where they were just like, complete assholes and intentionally trying to wreck things. But just like the the kind of philosophy of hardcore that a lot of people hold today kind of like breaks my heart a little bit um, because I it doesn't feel as much in my experience, and maybe this is just Midwest or even Indiana specific, it doesn't feel as much like um, 
like the family that we were discussing in the first half, and it doesn't, it feels so splintered. This is something Barricades was like very, uh, was advocating for very, very, like fervently the whole time. Lyrics and everything about bringing people together. Um, you know, yeah, we'll play a new metal show and we'll play a hardcore show and we'll play a, a you know, tech metal show. Like, we don't care and we want to watch you and we want to hang out. And even if 10 kids show up every time, we don't care because our whole point is we want to bring people together and we want to, like, unite this group and, like, build that family that everyone in my band had grew up with because we were older than everyone else. So we, like, knew that thing. And we had a lot of people who were, you know, just like, no, I don't want to play Indiana because people don't come out. And it's like, well, we have to be here to bring them out. Like, we that's the whole point is we have to unite this thing, you know. And I, I feel like... Uh, I'm about to, I'm trying, it's weird, I'm being a little abstract because, like, I'm trying not to get on the soapbox and go off, <laughs> but, um, your but podcast, the, go out, get on the I, soapbox. <laughs> I do plenty of that in the intros, but, um, anyways, so, uh, but yeah, thinking of that and thinking of just, like, um, I don't know, I, I miss, like, lyrics that, like, you, or, uh, I'll even throw, Aaron Bedard in there, or um, just like uh, there, I mean, there's a, a ton of bands, a ton of bands that have these like super heartfelt, message oriented. I don't need every song to be like Becker, right? I don't need every song to be like this super, super specific uh, message that is like you know super highbrow. That's not what I'm saying. All of my lyrics were very basic. <laughs> like my, it's very clear right. what I'm saying, and it's not like overly concerned. I was never much of a lyricist, anyways. But um, that, or even like film, uh, looking at, um, you know, I'll see something so powerful, and it will break my heart because it didn't do as well. Because people don't want to go watch like a two and a half hour movie that's super sad the whole time. But it's like, but the humanity in this. You know, like, for example, right now, currently, on the podcast, we're in the middle of a John Cassavetes marathon. Have you ever seen any John Cassavetes movies by chance? Uh, tell me a title, and I'm pro- I probably uh, have. Faces, A Woman Under the Influence, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Opening Night, Love Streams, Husbands. Um, there's a bunch, and you might not have. Yeah. But- no, some of those titles are familiar. I've not seen the movies, though. Yeah, yeah. So his his whole thing, we're doing a marathon right now. The uh, episode that dropped, uh, I guess, when this airs, like two weeks ago was uh, we studied Faces and Husbands, and we talked about it. A friend of mine from L.A. and I uh, did what you and I are doing right now, and we talked about those two movies. Next time, we're going to be doing two more. And uh, his movies really are exactly what I described. It's two and a half hours of people existing. That's it. Um, You know, you have people in a scenario that ultimately provides some level of conflict. Um but it's, I'm trying to think how my buddy Jake said it. Um, Cassavetes is like fluent, is the word he used. He's like fluent in humanity. Like, mm-hmm. like the way that he writes and the way that he gets actors to, to perform um, is, there's just something there that you won't find in other movies. Scorsese, Woody Allen, uh, Robert Altman, all these guys were heavily influenced by Cassavetes, but Cassavetes is in and of himself, he's the guy. He did it. He's the guy that basically created independent cinema in America, right? Like, he's doing independent movies in, like, the 50s. So, uh, my whole point in bringing that up is, it sucks because I watch his movies, and, you know, we, we talked about the movies, uh, his movie Husbands, which is 50 years old this year, right? And uh, it has Ben Gazzara, 
Peter Falk and John Cassavetes, who is an actor as well. Um, have you seen Rosemary's Baby? Of course, yeah. Okay, so Mia Farrow's husband, that's John Cassavetes. He's an actor, right. but he directed too. So uh, those three, they, their friend dies. They all go to this funeral, right? They're hanging out. Uh, they leave. They're all bummed out because they're kind of pissed about what the minister said. They didn't feel like it was a good representation of him, so they're going to all go get drunk and hang out together, right? How, I don't know. That's Maybe that's logical. I don't know. <laughs> that's what they're going to go do, right? So they, they go do that, and the rest of the film is takes place over the course of like two days, but it's just them living their life, coping, or rather trying not to cope with the fact that their friend died and they're unhappy at home. That's the whole point. But here's the thing. The truth in these movies is that people struggle and avoid their problems all the time. And we're watching this thing. And I think by watching these painfully truthful movies, like something like Husbands, which isn't even close to his best movie, but it's like it's a good movie at for this, where it forces you to look at how other people deal with it. And through that, you can say, well, they shouldn't do that. They should do this. Or if I were in this situation, I'd do this. But then the critical thinking comes in, and it's like, would you do that, though? Think about the adrenaline this person would be going through at this time. Or, or think about like how you would react if someone came at you this way. You say you'd punch them in the face, but would you really? Or would you back off and like listen to what they're saying first? See, that's how I watch. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm always thinking because I learn. I learn from movies. Movies teach me something. Do you feel like um, people's kind of lack of of critical thought maybe or or maybe avoiding the philosophical conversations that we started this off on you know and that kind of uh, density do you think that affects how people look at at art oh definitely i mean it's it's you know again it's all of this is like training if we learn from society government and the powers that be that we draw our power from that critical thinking is not important. It's going to affect the way we interact. It's going to affect how we deal with conflict with one another. It's certainly going to affect the way we look at art, the way we interpret art, because those are challenging things. Conflict with one another, the way we interact, looking at art, require engagement. I think one of the things that happened for me over the last half a year, I think that George Floyd's death, not to totally change the subject, changed everything for me. Um, I was living in, I moved to Portland basically for three months. My friends and I were going out and getting engaged and getting active whole story for another time, started doing mutual aid work and whatnot. And the idea of direct engagement all of a sudden became critically important. The idea of really thinking critically, why are the protests important? Okay. Once we ascertain that, is it important that I attend? Yes or no. If it is not important critically that I attend this particular this particular protest, what could I or should I be doing and why in response to what's happening in the world? Those kind of questions rather than just going along with the flow. And that's just the bare bones, bare bones basics of it. But engagement with the world, engagement with other people, and then looking at the protests as a reinterpretation of reality, which I guess we could make a case that art is – required really thinking critically and with without those skills that I know that I've started to build up over time working on this book and just thinking and whatnot. I mean, and I'm not an advanced critical thinker by any means, but without those ideas of thinking in this way, I don't know where I would have ended up 
I mean, I don't know where I would have ended up after this summer and this year happened. I think that it's essential that we we think we think critically to the best of our ability because it is challenging. I mean, if I said to all of your listeners, okay, we've got a choice. Either we could learn about uh, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, and Wittgenstein and discuss and compare and contrast their three philosophies and how they connect it. I don't even know what the hell I'm talking about, even as I give that example. Okay. Yeah. We could either do that or we could eat a shit ton of vegan pizza and watch some movies. What would 99% of human beings choose? I mean, there'd be the outliers like you on a weird day or me, if I was so inspired, he'd be like, okay, I'd love to know what Schopenhauer was all about. But I got to tell you, 99 times out of a hundred, I'd be like, I want the vegan pepperoni and uh, no cheese. I'm good. Extra sauce. Let's rock. I would choose pizza and chill out and fun and friendship over intensive philosophical conversation and debate. I mean, I even just now closed my eyes and went to a different safe place in my own mind, <laughs> thinking about the example as I was giving it. It takes a lot of work to engage critically and it's not always fun. So I think it's important not to say like some massive motivating statement of we have to do it all the time. It's like, give me a break. No, we have to eat vegan pizza and hang out. But we also have to engage a bit and think critically a bit because quite honestly, our lives and the lives of other people around us depend on it. So in terms of interpreting art, it's the same, it's the same way. I mean, art is a representation of life. It is not life itself. It is a representation on behalf of the artist for his, her, its, their self, and uh, the, the the culture or, or 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 viewers that are interpreting and seeing that art, it's a reinterpretation of the world that allows for the viewer to see life differently. And if we're not able to look at art and think, wow, I like that, it makes me feel good, and here's why, or I want to live my life differently as a result of seeing that, and here's why. Or it makes me see life differently, and here's why. We're just not getting the fullness that we might out of the experience. So I think it benefits us to think critically because it helps us see and interpret art and the world more fully. Yeah, I I sometimes feel uh, like a total outcast when I when I think of these things because, you know, uh, my best friend Thrasher. Uh, who will text me yet again and say, shout out. Um, he, he and I, when we talk, we, we, our batteries are recharged by the conversation that you and I are having right now. Right? Like, like I think he's going to love listening to this because, you know, he and I, especially since he and I both come from the church, we love just ripping into theology or like ripping into like, how much we fucking hate, hate evangel uh, ev evangelicals. Um, yeah, thank you. I couldn't think of the term for some reason. Because like, you hate them so much that your brain shut down. <laughs> yeah, my, I had to go to a safe place like you did. Um, no, it's it's um, it's just uh, looking at how you know we love like tearing into something about you know how uh, people use the Bible to justify their politics or oppressing people, or, uh, we'll dive into like, do aliens exist? <laughs> like even something like just, that. Okay. Dude, you rule. I, 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 I just had a thought just now when you said that about the monoliths mm -hmm. as art and, and if they, as an it create impact in the viewer, but anyway, please go on. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's like, 
you, you, you're on my bus here, man. Like that's that's kind of what recharges our batteries. I understand not everyone's that way. Uh, 100%. Some people want the pizza. More often than not, I do too. Like, I'm totally with you. And and I 100% agree. Like, this is not something that you have to keep turned on all the time. I mean, live your life. Have a great life. And it's, a, it's just as valuable to sit back and hang out with your friends and have that relationship. Like, I'm 100% on board. But it sucks when, especially if you're, like, teaching and none of your students ever want to do the work, right? Or... When, when, and, and I don't think that's ever happened. I think I always have, usually it's, you know, if I have 20 students, three to five of them are into the work. Like, let's do this. And they'll talk to me afterwards. You know what I mean? And then 10 of them are, you know, maybe not as into it, but they do it because they need it. You know, <laughs> like they need to grade or whatever. And then the others don't give a fuck. Right. And that's fine. Like, I, I love all my students, like, all the same. Like, I love them. But it does get into a point where it, it, Back to just saying it breaks my heart. It does break my heart when when people kind of just avoid so fervently uh, thinking beyond going back to politics, like you said, like thinking critically about what affects other people's lives, whether it affects yours, for example. Um, or I think the lack of creative thinking leads to, you know, alternative facts, quote unquote, or, um, you know, like, uh, my daughter, for example, I'll give you this and then we can move on. My daughter's nine years old, smart as a whip, as my grandpa would say, and uh, she's perfect. I love her so much. She is, she's never given me a hard time. She's an angel, okay? So uh, my daughter will talk to me and she'll say something and I'm like, well, that's actually not true. And I'll correct her because there is a factual, quantifiable answer to that thing, whatever it is, right? Um... And so I'll explain, like, I'll explain it to her and she'll go, well, my opinion is that it's this way. And I'm like, all right, let's talk about what opinions are. (laughs) And I have to break it down because she's been taught to qualify her thoughts by me and her mother individually about, like, qualify your thoughts. Like, you think this. Don't yuck people's yum. If you don't like something, say, I don't like this. You know, that's my opinion. But then she'll, when it comes to factual conversation she'll still use that you know now she's nine I'm, I'm not giving her shit here but my point is um i feel like that's how a lot of adults are <laughs> well and i think i think in a sense and correct me if i'm wrong but you used the example you started to use the example five minutes or so ago of hardcore in indiana and the family sense that wasn't there anymore and how disappointing it was and getting people to want to come out to shows and be at shows and i think that what you were getting at is now what you're talking about, that people weren't thinking critically about hardcore, what it signifies, what it could be, what if it was something that we were all more engaged in or attending, you know, that sort of line of questioning, what might it be? But instead people are just like, nah, whatever, yucking people's yum, as you suggested. Uh, And it results in, in a scene that is less vibrant and engaged. Yeah. I feel like too, there are a ton of bands these days but what I found in my experience is all of the quote unquote bigger shows or the shows at the like really legit venues were usually the same bands and all of the other bands were playing like house shows or like smaller shows. Uh, and it seemed like a lot of the bands too, a, a huge shift had happened where, uh, you know, we were, um, Bands were doing stuff so that they could build the popularity and get out there and do stuff. Whereas my band, 
who didn't care to tour or anything. Like I had, I, I, I was a teacher. <laughs> like I couldn't just leave for however many weeks or whatever. So I was just doing it because I missed it and I hadn't played since 2008 or whatever, you know, and I wanted to enjoy it. And so we wrote some kick-ass music, but our goal was like, we just want to hang out and like give you a positive message and like talk with you and like help you, <laughs> you know, like help build something, give other people opportunities. We would find bands that we loved and we'd bring them with us, you know, just so they could have more opportunities and meet people. And that was just our passion was like, let's uplift and build the scene. And it's very right. difficult to do. Um, when you feel like though a lot of people might say that's what they want to do, they're, they're not exhibiting what I would perceive as, uh, beneficial to that goal. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, um, it does. We're way off, uh, here. But no, 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 this is great. <laughs> this is, I mean, and I love this cause I mean, I've actually always been fascinated with what is the history of hardcore, not from the standpoint of the bands that people know the names of, but from the standpoint of the bands, they don't. Like the local bands, not in, even in Indianapolis, the local bands in other scenes around the state, not the bands from Seattle. What about the bands from Walla Walla? Not the bands from Reno, but who who had a band that no one ever heard about outside of Reno? You know what I'm saying? Just like, you know, those are just some random examples. I'm just, I'm so fascinated by that. And as time goes on, the idea of building the name for the band or the individual strikes me as pathological and psychologically detrimental. And I've often thought recently that when COVID ends and when we're doing shows and when there's touring again, that that with the spoken word that I want to do, rather than doing Greg Bennett's spoken word, that I want to do nights which are community gatherings of collective story sharing. I did one of these in, in Prague in the Czech Republic last year, and it was unreal. It was, it was just unreal. Like it, people came out, they didn't know what to expect. It wasn't Greg Bennett's spoken word. You know, look at me, look at me. Here's some stories. It was more just like, we're here to share. Here's a concept. What do you think of the concept? Let's talk. Let's share. I don't know. It just, it happened organically. And I think that there's, there's something to that. And I've actually contacted a friend of mine who booked my spoken tour in Mexico a couple of years ago. And I said, what if we did this all throughout Mexico, community gatherings where people, not just hardcore kids, but members of the community could come out and have their voice heard and listen to other people's voices maybe on a theme, maybe not. We define it as we develop the concept and there's just something about it that rings really true because of that pathological, maniacal nature of pursuing response and pursuing friends, fans, and followers that the world seems to be addicted to. It just seems completely the wrong way to go with everything. And I don't want to make a blanket statement and sound like I'm shooting down social media and the importance of it and whatnot, because it builds its own community and it has value. But we just have to be careful because just like when we don't think critically and then we don't think critically and then we don't think critically, it follows the same trajectory as uh, I'll work out tomorrow. I'll work out tomorrow. I'll work out tomorrow. And all of a sudden, three months later, you feel like a pile of crap. Well, mentally, we feel like a pile of crap when we don't think critically. And also, by your example, when we just think, ah, eh, whatever, I'll contribute to hardcore some other time or just let it just do its thing, it eventually dies. It goes through one of the ebbs in the ebbs and flows that scenes and hardcore overall take over years and decades and whatnot. But but also, when we just think to ourselves, yeah, just one more post, one more like, one more 
engagement in, in, in superficiality and that side of the friends, fans and followers world, we end up, um, I think eventually deeply unhappy. And, and, and the more that we can return to a centeredness and drawing power sources from within ourselves and from the people around us who are genuinely engaging with us, I, I'm convinced that this is going to lead us in the direction we need to go, or it's certainly the direction I need to go, but I hope the direction others need to go. Uh, and I know we're talking abstractions now, but I think these are valuable abstractions given the world that we live in. Yeah. Yeah. The world that we live in. Um, that, yeah, that's a whole episode too. Uh, <laughs> so with, with all of this, with everything that we've been talking about this time around, um, I, I, it's, it's a, a bit of a, of a strong turn here, but I am tying all of this together here. Um, we're going to put a pin in what we just talked about. I'm going to bring that back here. So, Oh, you mean we're going to put a pin in the state of the world, <laughs> how we live, who we are, where we draw our identity from, how art influences us and how we interpret it. Yeah. And vegan pizza. Cool. Yeah. yeah put a Diane Bennick, uh, you know, <laughs> mimes. Uh, no. Um, so Coin uh, I am going to bring that back. To, not all of it. Maybe <laughs> that's a lot that you just named. Actually, I didn't realize we'd gotten that far, but um, more of like philosophy or, or how, how we perceive uh, the world. How, how does this affect you when you consume um, like movies, for example? Let's just get into that. Like, do you find um, that like your philosophy on things or, or, or Becker or, you know, the things that have influenced your beliefs, attitudes and values, do you consciously see that as affecting how you perceive movies or how you enjoy certain movies or not? Or uh, oh, like, yeah, like yeah, what, what's your relationship with movies, I guess, is kind of a roundabout way of what I'm getting at. Well, I mean, I love them and I haven't been watching nearly enough of them in the last few months, certainly, because I've been just spending my time reading. But what I have been watching, The Mandalorian, can't get enough of it. Uh, and I consider those, I mean, those are movies, essentially. This is not a show or a Netflix, TV, YouTube, whatever show. These are mini movies every week. Um, they are incredible in that regard and their structure and their and their delivery. But what affects me is the humanity of it, the sensitivity, the the empathic sense that I might have within me that we all have. I mean, it's not a special skill of mine, but the empathic sense we have of another person's feelings. This is really just like blown up in the last in the last half a year, certainly. I mean, these are all experiences that we've all had, but I think as I interpret the world around me, we were all feeling a very heightened sense of being sensitive to the needs of other people. Uh, and we've all done, maybe not all, but many of us have done devoted work in the last, you know, half a year, or 2020 by and large, um, about who am I? What am I feeling? What are the other people around me feeling? What is their experience? What's happening for them? How can I support, help, listen, uplift them. That's just the way the world has gone this year, you know, past the spring, essentially, when we spent the entire spring going, what the hell's, what, wait, what's, what's happening? And we were all on the COVID coaster and completely in crisis. <laughs> and once that, once that shifted, meaning, you know, again, I use the example of George Floyd's death. George Floyd's death was a moment where we went, oh, okay, wait a minute. There's a world and other people are in it. It's not just ourselves and our own personal chaos, right? Yep. 
um, there's this empathic sense and an anger and an intensity that got generated, which was delicious and intimidating and awesome and very real. And it's definitely impacted the way that I interpret film and movies and ideas. And again, I go back to the Mandalorian because I watched the Mandalorian and it's got elements of revenge, which is sweet and delicious to think about at all times. It's got elements <laughs> of enemies. And I love the idea of enemies currently. Um, it's got uh, compassion and sensitivity and sweetness and kindness. It's got, you know, adventure and intensity and all these different, you know, things. And it's my, my love of it would have been a love at any other time during my life. Cause I'm most definitely a star Wars kid grew up with it and everything, but it's heightened this year, I think because of the events of the world and the, the, the critical thought, which again, is not unique to me, but the critical thought that we've all experienced this year. And it's more, you know, to use a philosophical term, the, the ontological thought, meaning the, the, how are we being in the world? Um, ontology, the idea of, of, of being, um, how am I being in the world? What is the being of Greg in a world where I can't talk to my friends? I can't see anybody. I can't interact with people. I can't hug them. How am I being in the world? Go down that trajectory, which we've all done this year, no matter if you've got an advanced degree or no degree, we've all done that work. It's going to shift and change the way that we see ourselves, our relationship to other people. And then of course our relationship to the art around us. Yeah. 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 Actually to go back to the Mandalorian, uh, my wife and I are actually, uh, working through that. She won't, she doesn't want to watch the most recent episode. Cause that means it's over like until the next one comes out, which doesn't make sense to me because we still have to like wait the next week to watch the one from last week, but it's fine. So, <laughs> Um, but we're working through it. So I, I, I see you there. Um, that's something maybe we can talk about sometime, but, um, let's see here. Hold on. I had a thing I was going to bring up. You just said something really good. It distracted me. Movies. How did you get into movies, Greg? Because you, 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 you have, oh, 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 I do remember now. It is tied into what I was about to say. Okay. So first thing, before I ask you the question, I just asked you. Disregard. Okay. <laughs> Have you seen um, Totally Under Control? No. Documentary? I'll write it down. It's on Hulu. Yeah. Um, but it, we did a we did a bonus episode. We actually had an epidemiologist come on with us because it's uh, it's uh, Alex Gibney's documentary about how uh, the Trump administration has handled or not handled the COVID crisis. Um, and it's actually a pretty powerful and enlightening uh, documentary. They pounded it out in like five months or something, which as someone who's at least watched the process of a documentary, that's fast as shit. Uh, so they knocked that out and they got kind of like secret interviews with people on the inside and uh, it's pretty good. So I was just going to say, um, if you want to bum yourself out uh, with some, <laughs> bum yourself out some more, um, go check that out. Thank, but Thanks. I'll choose the pizza party instead, <laughs> but that's cool. No, I, I will watch it. And and for people who don't realize, you're absolutely right. Five months from concept to completion of a documentary is like the blink of an eye. Blink of an eye. Yeah. I mean, you guys you guys were doing, uh, and I don't remember how long you were involved, if you were there from the beginning or not. I, I want to say you weren't, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. But like even holding these moments, that was like a four-year process or something. Yeah, not the filming four. only, but I mean the whole thing, yeah. right? I want to say four, four years, four or five years, somewhere in there. And I came in probably, I think, a year after they'd started. Uh, yeah, a, a tremendous amount of time. 
And I mean, just, to, I mean, Ricky, the amount of hours, I once sent Ricky a text about two months ago and I said, someday I hope I have $1 for every hour you've put into the conceptualization and editing of this documentary because I would be a quadrillionaire. It's unreal how much time Ricky put into this thing. Yeah. It's just monstrous. So yeah, it takes a tremendous amount of time. Five months is, that's clarity of vision. That's clarity of having a vision and and a goal. That's fantastic. Yeah, they're clearly shooting and editing immediately. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. Um, they're doing like every day, I'm sure. I yeah. do recommend it though. And the epidemiologist uh, who we had on, who was a friend of uh, this uh, other gentleman that's on here a lot uh, named Joe Shearer from the Film Yap, um, yeah, epidemiologist uh, Eileen White came on. She was just like, this is the movie people need to see. Like, this is saying everything that people in my field have been trying to get out there, but no one will pay attention, you know. Um, so that that's really good. Just another plug on the show, I guess, for it. But back to holding these moments and, and just all of the docs, because pretty much anything that you've been involved on a producer side and uh, – looks like writing side as well. I have your IMD pulled up right here, your IMDb, but um, they're all documentaries. What what has drawn you to documentaries and what's the process or what's your involvement in a lot of these? I'm sure it's different, um, but I mean, how'd you even get involved in this? So I've always loved film and the idea of it. And when I was a kid, uh, in fact, the, that guy who I talked about in the last episode, Chris, who came over to my house with hip hop and yeah. Uh, hardcore and punk rock on cassettes when I was uh, a young teen, he and I were making stop action films back then, like claymation stop action films. And that's and awesome. It was cool. It was super cool, like back in the day. And, and we're inspired by different, you know, filmmakers along those lines back then. Um, but the way that the, the documentaries came about, I was in Seattle. I had started something called the World Leaders Project with Sheldon Solomon, who was then chair of the psych department at Skidmore College in New York, psychology department. And I had come up with this idea to write to every world leader of every country on the planet with Sheldon and invite ourselves to come and speak with them. And and the idea was that if, if it's true that we are, as Becker suggested, um, influenced by our fear of our more our own mortality and if in response to that fear one of the things we do is we cling to um cultural constructs let's say that give us a sense of psychological safety money religion family power uh or you know an office you know that we're that we're uh, you know the president you know the president of something these are cultural constructs that give us a sense of permanence and safety. If all that's true, what then, world leader, we asked, is the reason that you're in office, essentially, and how might you continually remember the people who you're serving? Because being in office is serving you psychologically. It's making you feel soothed about your potential mortality. Well, let's break out of that and instead be thinking about what people are experiencing on the streets on a day-to-day basis. You know, hardcore had always been about the people in response to power. Well, we thought, you know, what if we talk to people in power and how they are dealing with people based on their own psychology? So we wrote a letter to every leader of every country on the planet. And uh, many countries wrote back, this is in 2001, many uh, countries wrote back and they said, um, 
no. Some were like, if you come here, we're going to arrest you. Uh, <laughs> some were like, don't even think about it. And then two countries said yes. Belize and Guyana um, said yes, uh, come here. The meeting with the president of Belize, prime minister of Belize, was um, canceled due to 9-11. But we ended up flying to meet the president of Guyana. Okay, so all this said and done, and that's a whole thing for another time. It was pretty fascinating. And, and, and just the idea that we had access to a world leader was of interest, you know, because these are people too, but all, also they're not because we've elected them to be more than just people. Yes. Another story for another time. Patrick Shen of Transcendental Media in California was working on a film idea that was in development that he was shooting some, some, uh, some, uh, some footage for called Man's Search for Meaning. No, Man's, I can't remember what the title was, but he wanted to interview people involved in Becker's work. So he contacted the Ernest Becker Foundation and said, I'm looking for somebody who's not a talking head academic to talk to. And they're like, well, we've got this guy who is like this punk rock guy who thinks he can talk to world leaders. You might want to talk to him. Patrick came over, interviewed me, and within minutes of that interview starting, we were laughing so much and got along so well that the associate producer he'd brought with him uh, finally was just like, I'm out of here and walked out of the room because Patrick and I were just nonstop laughing the entire time. So we started working together on that project. And that is what became Flight from Death. We put in uh, a couple of years worth of time and a ton of money on an individual basis. And we got a grant to completed as well. But the writing of it and the producing of it fell on both of our shoulders and Patrick directed. And Flight from Death did really well, as it turns out, in the film festival circuit. I mean, we we didn't know at the time that winning best documentary seven times over was significant because it wasn't an Oscar. It wasn't the Cannes Film Festival. It wasn't Sundance. And we just thought, oh, I guess anybody's first big documentary on their own wins best documentary awards because they have sympathy, sympathy on us as filmmakers. We didn't realize that's a thing like that. That was, that was cool. So, uh, we worked on one other documentary after that called the philosopher Kings. And then, uh, there was a third documentary as well. And then from there, it was just kind of in the, in the cards as it were, just kind of in the, you know, in the wheelhouse. So when other opportunities have come up and I don't actively pursue them, you know, some I've turned down. Um, I, you know, I was asked to work on a documentary on uh, the history of hockey, and then there was another one on on punk rock and something that I just I just didn't have the time or the focus in part because of the Becker project. But the Bane documentary, I was excited uh, to help with certainly, and then uh, and then on the wild side, which is the anti-hunting documentary out of Italy that just came out this last year and is now in film festivals. Uh, you know, obviously, I mean, how could I not? help and support on the wild side and, you know, and, and an anti-hunting documentary that speaks directly to my heart. So yeah. And then, you know, on the wild side needed a, a narrator and Giacomo, the director and I, Giacomo Giorgi and I were talking about, you know, oh, wow, you know, you could be the narrator of this thing. We could write the narration together. So now on my IMDB, where I'm sure it says narrator of on the wild side, or maybe it doesn't, but if it, you know, anybody watches it knows because it says it and it's my voice. That now is part of the wheelhouse, right? So it's kind of happened almost organically in a way. Even last week, I got a text from a film producer here in Seattle who said to me, hey, would you be interested in, in producing documentaries in the future if I could raise money in order to pay you to do it? And I don't remember how many yeses I wrote back in the text message, but I think it was like <laughs> 10, 10 yeah. or 12 yeses. 
So it's just now it's just things are, are happening when they happen. And, uh, you know, for me, I love when a documentary tells a story that's relatable, that people can see aspects of their own life in on the wild side definitely does that. It's got some really accessible, really heartfelt interviews from from different people, but one in particular, a former hunter who talks about why he stopped hunting. And anybody who watches the documentary can relate to this person. The Bane documentary goes without saying whether or not you're involved in hardcore, you can't watch that documentary and not feel the sense of community that's created around the band and around hardcore. And those are the projects that speak the most to me. And yeah. I would love uh, you know, just to keep doing those whenever they come up. It'd be great. I, I know that if I ask you how did you feel about watching Holding These Moments after it finally dropped – I know you'd be like, I loved it. I feel like that'd be your answer. But I'm going to tell you this, and then I'm going to ask you a similar question. Uh, I've always called him Ricardo, but all you guys call him Ricky, and now I feel like I should call him Ricky. But anyways, um, Ricardo sent me a, a screener of it, you know, because I had contacted him. We were about to do our first episode of this. This is a relatively new uh, podcast, but we are uh, we are partnered with thefilmyap.com, so that's kind of how uh, we get out there and... Uh, when I realized that, like, I know a lot of hardcore people, like, that's my thing, or like metal bands, or, you know, like, just one thing leads to another, and I just meet all these people, I've played with a bunch of people, and just after 20 plus years, you get to know a lot of people, as you obviously um, can relate to, and so I just, originally I was going to do this podcast, which I might still do, but I was going to do this one called uh, the Nerdsplaining Podcast, where I just nerd out with people about, like, anything because I'm I can't focus on one thing look we've talked about what have we talked about mimes juggling uh you know coin like, collecting <laughs> coin collecting um your mom being an awesome speaker uh philosophy like uh, you know existential all these things that we've talked about already uh I can't not do that because like I said it just recharges my batteries I just love talking about all these things but I had the opportunity to do a film thing so once that combined with Bane doing a documentary, my in is, that's a movie, <laughs> you know, and I watched it and I'm thinking, okay, this is, uh, I'm thinking actually uh, very similarly to what like Zach from Bane, I think is the one who thought is what, this is what it was going to be as well. He's like, I just thought it was going to be some cheesy documentary about like my band and I was afraid I was going to hate it. This is more of his fears, not what he thought it was going to be, but he just didn't know what to expect. And oh, no, it's I'll, obviously, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll say this, man, like watching it, and I have, of course, a, a personal, I can relate to it personally, but I think most people in the world have had some experience where they've been involved in something that they love, but for some reason, they've been, whether it be age or, or uh, you know, just for some reason, they can't uh, complete those tasks or do those things anymore, Um when you have to say goodbye to something, that is just like a real human struggle, right? And so I think, you know, I, I, I told the guys, I was like, I cried at this movie three times because I, like, I don't play hardcore anymore. You know what I mean? So it's like, it hit me very personally because I miss it all the time. That's, Dude, I don't even listen to hardcore nearly as much as I listen to other genres, and this has been the truth for probably the last decade, but there's no genre I would rather play, ever, 
than hardcore because that is there's an energy to it. Like I said, trying to build that family, meeting new bands, like just there's just something there. That energy, that the way people respond to your music, they're either standing there with their arms folded or they're getting wild, right? Like it's it's usually not an in between. Like it's pretty awesome. Um, and uh, so yeah, that documentary really. I was surprised. Holding these moments is something that I still encourage people, whether they're into hardcore or not, to get because it is not about this band. It is not exclusively, I should say, about this band that was around for 20 years or more. Um, it's it's about them having to give up something that they love. You know what I mean? I point blank asked Bedard. I was like, do you regret stopping? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> you know? And it makes it even more heartbreaking to watch the doc because you know? <laughs> it's like you know where they ended up. But when when you finally watched the final project, which I'm assuming that you have since then, I mean, what was your response to it? This thing that you had been kind of involved in? Well, I mean, we had Ricardo and Dan and myself and then Charles, when Charles came on, had countless hours of conversation about what direction should it take? Should it be this? Should it be that? Should it focus on this? Should it focus on that? And along the way, we were watching cuts. So I knew where it was going, right? We, we saw many iterations of the final cut, as it were, or, uh, you know, rough cut and then final cuts along, you know, semi-final and final cuts along the way, um, you know, with sound and then, you know, with proper color correction and all that. So we were, we were seeing clips and or cuts of the film often. So in a sense, I knew what to expect. But I remember the first time I watched the version of the film that became this version, because there were many versions. I mean, Ricky, Ricardo, went down a different path at first, and it was more chronological. And then he mixed up, not messed up, mixed up the chronology and very skillfully interwove two distinct timelines, the timeline of the end of the band and the timeline of the development of the band. And he did it like a braid. And it was a little work of genius. And I say little you know, in, in hypothetical air quotes, right? It was a substantial work of genius that he did that because what it ended up doing was creating this doubly compelling narrative as the film goes on. Where are they going? How did they come to be? Where are they going? How are they going to end? I mean, come on now. Yeah, well, like, uh, have you seen the yeah. documentary about Roger Ebert, Life Itself? Did you see no. that by chance? Okay, it, it's it's uh, an... Excellent. It's by Steve James, who did Hoop Dreams in 1994 and several others. Yeah, he did. He did Life Itself. And what's amazing, I was telling Dan and and Ricardo this as well, I believe, and neither one of them had seen it either. Um, It shows Roger Ebert as he's growing to become this critic while simultaneously, because it was before he, I think it might have been released after he died. I can't remember. He died shortly after. Um, But either way, there was footage of him still alive. And of course, he had had surgery and he couldn't speak anymore. And um, so, you know, it had cut to him just like really kicking ass as a critic. And then just a immediate jump cut to him laying in a hospital bed. And it's just so depressing. And watching that constant up and down because you're watching it go up and the more up it goes the more down it's going on the other side of it, right? So you're, it's like the, the past and the future, or the past and the present are like separating in like extremes, you know what I mean? And it makes it, makes it um, incredibly emotionally impactful. 
And uh, holding these moments kind of does a similar thing because I think it'd be significantly less or, or maybe more cliche or less effective if you just have the band grow and then it's not so much that they go down, but like now they're nearing the end, right? Or whatever. Yeah. Um, but by showing they're growing and growing, but they're also now presently struggling with giving it up you're seeing what they're giving up more and more as it grows. Do you get what I'm saying? Yep, and, I absolutely and, do. And that that is, I think, honestly, what makes the movie, man. That's, that's my thing. Uh, I love it. So, um, yeah, I you know, I'm excited. I, on IMDb, it actually says that On the Wild Side is just announced. So I'm excited that it's in uh, the festivals right now and stuff. Um, and you'll have to let me know whenever it actually comes out or whatever. Oh, it's, it's definitely out. Let me, uh, let me have IMDB change that. I'll make sure that that happens. IMDB, uh, OTWS announced. Uh, <laughs> I didn't realize that it says just announced. I'll make sure that that gets changed within the next few hours. I'm really good. Whenever we were, you know, uh, I asked you what movies uh, we should talk about and you mentioned the shining and you mentioned Romero movies. We had uh, Galen Ross on, who was like Francine and Dawn of the Dead, you know, and uh, I was using IMDb to track all of her movies, but they're all out of order. <laughs> so like the whole conversation is me being like, so you went from, you know, Karis's dream to X, Y, Z. And she's like, no, no, I, I did this. And I'm just like, I hate you, IMDb. <laughs> like I was just, it was like kind of embarrassing, you know, but we, we went with it. She was really cool. Um, but speaking of that, though, just doing a quick, just a complete jump just to our interests at this point, just to start the slow wrap up because we're like preachers and we have like a billion endings. Um, but, uh, you know, what is what What are you into? Like what? So you've talked about the Mandalorian, right? You've talked about being a Star Wars fan. You brought up in text with me, the Shining Romero movies. Are you a horror guy in general? Yep. Um, Love it. Yep. See, I should have had you on in October when we were doing our top fifteen favorites. What what is, um, like, what are your go tos, man? I would say, and you know, now that we're just talking about The Shining and and Romero for a second, the fact that you had Galen Ross on is unbelievable. Um, I could show you my collection of Romero paraphernalia, including I'm looking at it across the room, a signed Day of the Dead poster where Romero signed it. Greg, stay scared, George Romero. Um, That's awesome. The fact that you've got. Um, the twins from The Shining as a guest, or you I'm working had them? On it. I'm working on it. Yeah, they've already agreed I, that they want to do it. We just have to schedule it. Okay, so. I will come emotionally and mentally unglued when that happens. I will be beyond excited that you were able to arrange that. Okay, so all that said, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, anything relating to zombies, Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead, even Walking Dead World Beyond, the new show that's out now. Um, all of these things fascinate me, but especially zombie films, there's something about them. And I think it relates to my own inherent fear of death and anxiety about it and processing of it. The idea that it doesn't end with death and then it makes it worse. Oh God. Like there's nothing more terrifying than that. Yeah. Um, I will also say that, um, uh, Scott Reiniger from the original Dawn of the Dead film, who was the, um, SWAT team member who came along with Flyboy Galen Ross, um, and, uh, and, uh, oh, oh, I can, I remember the, the, the last character's name right now. Um, uh, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Anyway, you could look it up <laughs> while we go. Point is, uh, Scott, I met him at a, uh, at a, uh, a, a Romero a zombie convention 
a, um, a few years ago and had an incredible reunion with him because something had happened a decade or so ago that I was just so stoked about. I wrote to him. I wrote him a letter and I said, hey, my brother is getting married. He is a huge um, uh, Dawn, of, Dawn of the Dead fan. Would it be possible for me to pay you for an autograph? And he wrote back to me and he said, you don't need to pay me. Congratulations and best wishes to your brother. What are his and his fiance's name? And I wrote him back and he sent me a couple autographed photos that were like, you know, to, to Daryl and, and his, his fiance, you know, congratulations, best wishes, Scott, all these different options. And he sent me some for me. And I saw him at this convention a couple of years ago and I went up to him and I said, you did this thing a decade plus ago. And I just wanted to thank you. And he not only remembered doing it, but he thanked me for asking him. And I'm like, oh my God, this is the coolest guy. You yeah. know, it just, it just was so great. So I, um, I watch zombie films a lot. Horror, sure, absolutely. I love well-constructed horror films. Again, I go back to The Shining as like, just like, one of the greatest films ever made. I'm in mad passionate love with the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is not a horror film, but a uh, Wes Anderson film. I think it's absolutely genius. Um, other films, um, uh, There Will Be Blood. Mm-hmm. Um, I think well-acted films are always astounding and I can watch them over and over again. And uh, Anchorman, I could watch again and again until the end of time <laughs> yeah. and never stop laughing. Yeah. yeah, there there are so many things to talk about there. I'm going to say this um, real quick. The Shining was my number one on our on our list, so I'm totally, I'm I'm all on your bus with that. That's uh, Kubrick is my favorite filmmaker of all time. First off, yeah. um, and I've started like a sleeve of just like Kubrick shit, <laughs> like you know, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, he's he's phenomenal just all the time, but. Uh, yeah. The Shining, you know, I, I didn't actually really appreciate The Shining nearly as much until I started doing research back to critical thought and, uh, you know, researching to understand things better. I started researching The Shining and really applying my brain, and I was going to my very first conference, and I was going to be presenting on Kubrick's use of fear in The Shining. That was like my first conference. Uh, I was going to Boston, and it's like, we're going to do this thing. And I probably saw that movie 50 times writing that whole thing, right? Like writing the article I was taking and all of that. And uh, man, that is just name to me. Of course, I've already stated it as my favorite, but it's like name a better one. Like, I mean, there might be more entertaining ones for some people, but it's like, again, you know, I go back to, yes, like when, um, oh, why can I think of the female lead's name right now? Um, Shelley Duvall. Thank you very much. Um, when Shelley Duvall at the beginning, her 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 performance is so stale or like so um, one note. Same thing with Jack Nicholson, right? But the 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 way that you know that they're great in this movie, and the way that you know that that's intentional, is that by the end of the actually the culmination of all of everything being the. Uh, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. That 100%. scene does it. But even up to the end where he's banging through the bathroom door and, and she's screaming. Randy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Huff, and oh, puff. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really great. So, 
You know, like their performances get better as the film goes on, but you can also track that with his different uses of fear. And uh, man, that that movie's like so complex, but it's like a classic that people can just watch surface level. But man, when you start peeling back those onion layers, dude, uh, he's a real genius, Um, uh, Kubrick. Uh, And so, um, and it's really sad because I also don't know the ethical uh, qualities of a filmmaker like Kubrick where you're giving people, like you're pushing people into situations where they're having like nervous breakdowns on your set. And And that's what happened with Shelley Duvall in the film. It is. Yeah. Um, absolutely happened. Yeah. It's, it's really wild or making someone do like 132 takes or whatever of just walking into a room. That's right. You know, like again and again and again, again and again and again. And, and, you know, I, I know that in a movie like eyes wide shut, he had Tom Cruise walk into, Oh no. Oh no. I lost you. Are you there? Poor connection. Boom. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. No, I was actually talking about uh, in Eyes Wide Shut, he makes Tom Cruise walk into the room, like this bedroom or whatever, like a billion times, like so many times. But I, I believe it's the scene when he walks in right after going to like that whole, like that sex party or whatever, the orgy party. So he ha- he's like exhausted, right? Well, like Kubrick made him do it so many times that Tom Cruise, the human, like real person is exhausted. Yes. Um, man, my favorite move, like most of my favorite movies, I feel like are filmmakers like that, that, that uh, just put their, their uh, cr- like cast and crews through such hell, but they create great art, you know, um, you know, so Kubrick being my favorite of all time, Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, who did There Will Be Blood is probably my favorite living filmmaker. Uh, I think he's magic. Do you like other movies of his, like Boogie Nights or, or Magnolia or Punch Drunk Love and any of the master? All, all, all of the above, but all of the above I've only seen once or maybe twice, depending on which one we're talking about. There Will Be Blood I could watch again and again and again and again and again. Like that film, I mean, is, is relentless. And I mean, you know, you're talking about an actor who is so – deeply devoted to character. I mean, that when he played Lincoln, I mean, when Daniel Day-Lewis played Lincoln, as I understand it, he stayed in character throughout the entire production of Lincoln. When he did There Will Be Blood, he didn't break that 
characterological choice of the accent he'd been working on until they wrapped the production. I mean, he stayed in it. He became the character. The devotion is just wild. Oh, and Ken Foray. Ken Foray from Dawn of the Dead is who I was thinking of. When you were talking, I was going to say it, but I was just letting you talk. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. And I, I met him. I, I have a, 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 a really fun interaction with him, too. I think, if I remember correctly, I think he and I called my brother and um, wished him uh, wished him well one day. Um, I think we called him on the phone. It was pretty wild the day that I met him. But um, point is, I think that uh, that devotion to one's craft that we see in a Daniel Day Lewis is so inspiring, just so incredibly inspiring. And you know, as somebody, you know, I have an acting background. Certainly, nothing like the level of the people we're talking about. It's it's inspiring to see that. And then, you know, I, I've often wished in moments of, wow, what would I have done differently in my life if I could have a rewind button? You know, being some type of stage, maybe not film, but a stage director of some kind more often, because I think that cultivating out those nuances from a performance is is fascinating. That's a fascinating process. In the same way that it's a fascinating process, I assume, for a painter to mix refinements of color until, you know, they get the tone that they want or the shade that they want refining those nuances in a performance is just is such a relationship based fascinating process and we see that certainly in the shining i mean you know shelly duvall had a nervous breakdown after after shooting as as you know and i mean even during shooting and you know the scene of you know the the all work and no play makes jack a dull boy i could watch that scene in fact i'm going to watch it when we're done with this podcast interview because i love it so much <laughs> i mean that is that is the greatest I mean, man, I, I could go into a whole analytical thing and explain, you know, the whole like amazing aspect of, of how that was shot because that was part of the article I wrote. But um, just trust me and we can talk about it another time that it is great. It's interesting that you bring up There Will Be Blood as well because um, The Shining and There Will Be Blood have a lot of similarities. When Paul Thomas Anderson was writing There Will Be Blood, he was listening to, oh my God, I can't believe I just forgot the guy's name. Uh, but the, the guy who... Um, I can't remember if the, if if he wrote or was uh, Pendretsky. Uh He 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 did. Uh, he either wrote or was the one who obviously inspired the soundtrack uh, for The Shining. So it's just all. If you listen to Pendretsky, it's like the just the most horrifying thing you've ever heard. <laughs> like because it's literally just dissonant strings and like and crescendos and like just constant movement. I mean it's. It is creepy. It's like not even fun to listen to, <laughs> you know, because it's just there's just like so much that. going on. But if you listen to the which I do, I actually love the There Will Be Blood soundtrack just by itself. Is I mean, Johnny Greenwood's amazing. And uh, but you can hear that there are like these moments where you get the shining, the tracking shots that Paul Thomas Anderson does shining. Um, I mean, just like a lot of the the work he does. There are a lot of similarities there, which is why I think not only is There Will Be Blood probably the best film of that decade, uh, but I think it's really just one of the one of the greats. And I think 2007 was actually the last greatest year <laughs> of movies. You know, what I mean, because I mean, if you look at all the movies that came out uh, that year, it's it's pretty wild. Um, but I, what else I, came out that year? Tell me what else came oh out. Oh God, that year. dude. Um, okay, so Fincher came out with Zodiac. Um, yeah. uh, before the devil knows you're dead, uh, there will be blood. 
um, I, I'm like spacing this really hard. Um, no Country for Old Men. Oh yeah, there you go. Um, oh my God, why can't I think of more of these? I was just looking something up yesterday, and I noticed that movie came out from 2007. Also, it's just like every good one. I'll have to like send you a list. I have like a list of my yeah. favorites, and I couldn't even do a top ten because there's too many good ones, you know. Um, but if you haven't seen The Master recently, Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. No, I've never you, seen it. Oh, you've never seen it. No, that right. one I've I, never seen. I love watching you clearly writing these down so you don't forget yeah. them. Like, it yeah, makes gotta, me happy that list. you're actually doing that. But you should... That was, that was the one that came up earlier that I was like, no, I've never seen that one. I Am Legend came out in 2007. Yep. 300... Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, and let's not forget the Simpsons movie. All came out in 2007. Ratatouille as well. Shrek the Third. You're, this was a I, tremendous year. I love what you're choosing. So check this out. I will. I will. Um, I love that this is on my podcast right now. This is making me so happy. So uh, do you have a letterbox to count? I don't. Okay, cool. I, I, I'll tell you about that sometime too. Um, but check this out uh, on Letterboxd. I just pulled up 2007. No Country for Old Men, Zodiac, um, which uh, Order of the Phoenix. There will be blood, Hot Fuzz, Juno, Super Bad, uh, Into the Wild. He is or he is legend. <laughs> um, I am legend. Uh, Grindhouse, like Death Proof, and all those Sweeney Todd, um, Atonement. I mean, dude, like you can just go down. Oh my God, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Funny Games, uh, the U.S. version. I mean, just dude, I could go. I'm looking, and it's just like name a director, and they made an awesome movie that year. It's just uh, top. Michael the Clayton, de the, the Departed. I'm seeing here won the um, uh, wins picture the yep, Academy yep. Award. It was released in 2006, but it won the uh, 2007 award. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, there's just there's just a lot. I'll, I'll have to let you know about Letterboxd. Um, but anyways, getting getting back to the master real quick. You should you should definitely check out the master. I'm going to tell you why. Uh, if you like, there will be blood. It's a continuation of that. No, not of there will be blood. Hold on. <laughs> I was going to say that um, no, doesn't make any sense. But it's yeah. a continuation of uh, that style. So it's he's not going back to like Boogie Nights, Magnolia, like that type of thing. He has he kind of sticks with this kind of slower. Um, more thoughtful, kind of abstract storytelling like he did in There Will Be Blood. The Master follows uh, uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character and Philip Seymour Hoffman's. And um, I will say this. I don't want to give much... A, you can't really ruin it, but I don't want to say much because I think you'll pick up on these things. Uh, but the movie is actually a love story between these two men, okay? But it never explicitly says this. But you pick this up throughout the scenes. And I think it's one of those movies that has such complex characters, going back to performances. Um, and I'm also going to toss writing in there. He, it's a movie that seems to be about like random scenes of these people's lives. Like It doesn't seem to have some through-line, clear plot. Um, but whenever you put those pieces together, like after you watch it, uh, it's very clear to me, at least. Yeah. Like as soon as I got in the car after seeing it in theaters, I was like, "This is what this movie's about." And my friend's like, "What? How'd you pick that up?" And I'm like, "Let me explain it to you." You know, um, it's uh, <clears throat> and then later, uh, I think 
Paul Thomas Anderson was on Mark Maron's podcast, WTF, and he yeah. basically said the same thing. He's like, yeah, I wanted it to be a love story between these two characters. And I was just like, yes, like, like validated. Yeah. yeah. Um, but check, you should definitely check out um, The Master. So, t- so tell me this. Um, with with uh, going back to zombie movies here, what I find fascinating about zombie movies is you have some that are about the zombies. You have some things like The Walking Dead, which I'm a huge fan of the comics of Walking Dead. But with The Walking Dead, which is more about you fear other humans more so than you fear like zombies, right? Like it deals with that side of it. But with Romero doing kind of the first film that's about zombies the way that we imagine them now with Night of the Living Dead um, and on, he has these like subtext, really thick subtextual ideas, whether it be about race, whether it be about consumer consumerism, capitalism, and materialism, and so on. Um, I feel like uh, zombie movies can be such a great vehicle for philosophies, right? Absolutely. Um, uh, and <laughs> also impending death. I guess we could bring uh, Becker back into this. Um, but aside from that, what like what other horror movies are you into? You know, I, I think that um, it's interesting. I just had a, a kind of a, a revisiting of the original Halloween, which I don't think really holds up as much as I thought it did when I first saw it. So I, I watched that again and I was like, wow, this is the last 15 minutes are incredible. And then there's moments throughout which are good. And the rest is is kind of this development. I'm just not convinced about it. And I feel that that's sacrilegious to say, because I do love it and I did love it, but it, it is sacrilegious for this one reason. Um, Joe, the other guy from the film yap, his number one was Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting, you know, I mean, there's some things about it, which are incredible. John Carpenter's soundtrack, putting the soundtrack in five, four time rather than four, four time is one of the greatest choices in, in history. Because as you listen to the soundtrack and you feel uncomfortable, it's because it doesn't just go dun 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 right that little jump of dun 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 is so unsettling as you listen to it, and then the the other little you know kind of piercing sound in the background, genius. So I mean, keep in mind this movie's almost fifty years old at this point. Of course, there's going to be moments where you're like, oh okay, they could have done this differently and whatnot. But um, the reason I bring that up is because I watched it back to back when I watched it with a movie called It Follows. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar with It I Follows, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I loved, and I loved It Follows in the same sense that I loved zombie and I love zombie films. One of the things I love about zombie films is that there's no rationalizing with death, no matter how much we philosophize, no matter how much we stroke each other intellectually, we're going to die. A hundred years from now, there's no you or me on this podcast because we are long food for worms, okay? There's no rationalizing or philosophizing our way out of it. Zombies are the same way. They're going to keep coming and they're going to chomp into and eat your flesh regardless of if you stop and talk to them about how their actions are not exactly what they should or should not be doing to live or die a better life or death. They're just not going to. It follows is the same way. There's no way to rationalize with this thing that is following you. It's just going to keep following you forever, no matter where you go. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I even get chills thinking about that. So I'm massively into <laughs> to that film. Um, I just, I, I watched that uh, a whole, a whole slew of times. 
It's really difficult to cope with something that you can't rationalize through for somebody oh like me. You know, um, Absolutely. And the same thing with my buddy Thrasher, where like, if I'm like, what movie should we watch? And he looks at all the movies on my list. We're going to sit there for, you know, 45 minutes or maybe even the length of a movie trying to figure out what movie, because I care too much about the person I'm watching it with. I want them to enjoy this. Let's find some because I could just pick something. Um, and then, you know, Thrasher is just going to be like, man, we could watch this, but I really want to see this, you know? And then we just keep going back and forth. And then he makes a decision. I'm like, wait, 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 but what about this movie? You know, and it just goes on and on. But man, one thing that we can get into, like, uh, or sorry, the whole point of that was the rationalizing thing. Like we just, it's like, we can't even rationalize through that, let alone dealing with something that like, not just death, but like, you can't sit and talk to Mike Myers to Michael Myers and be like, no. Hey, please don't do Listen, here, here's the benefits of letting me live. Right. Yeah, you or like, you literally can't do that. And, and the brilliance of Michael Myers, actually, the, and Halloween as a whole, just to, to give you some context from my perspective, though it was not in on my list, but I do love it a lot. Um, is, uh, Michael Myers was one of the really early, uh, representations of the ultimate evil. Right, you had other movies where you had human characters that an evil was influencing, but um, at the very beginning of the first movie, you have uh, who was it like Donald Pleasance or something like yes, Donald whoever, Pleasance, yeah, whoever the uh, him I guess we just established, but uh, whenever he's drive or uh, he's riding in the car and and the nurse is driving and uh, she says something, she keeps saying he talking about Michael Myers like he he and Donald Pleasance keeps saying like it. It. Yes. It's the ultimate evil. That's how you can see it in one moment. You turn your gaze, turn back, and it's gone. Because it's an it. It's not human. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's this otherworldly evil. And, uh, dude, that, that almost that exclusively sells the movie. <laughs> I don't no, know I'm, why. I'm, don't, don't get me wrong. When, you know, I, and there's, there's moments like that. There's so many moments in that film which, which do hold up for me. I think that watching it overall, I just thought, wow, I just remembered this differently because I was so unbelievably terrified of it as a kid. Now, now that I've said this, I'm going to go back and watch it. I'm going to love it just as much as I, as I did before. But here's another thought on that. I watched the first Nightmare on Elm Street right before I watched Halloween. Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one, in my opinion, with the exception of the last 20 seconds – absolutely holds up over history and does a really good job as a horror film. And I loved it the second time around. No, I mean the 20th time around, but watching it after years and years and years. And I just felt not as um, impacted by Halloween. But, you know, again, now that I've entered into this zone of heresy, I should go back and watch Halloween no, no, no. yet again. You're, you're, you're totally fine. I'm just giving you shit. But I'll say this, though. I agree with you. And on my – we did a top 15 because the first three episodes we had, we did five movies each. So it's like a really random number. But we did our top 15 favorite horror movies. Um, and so uh, my I had some criteria. One of my criteria was um, only one filmmaker, like per. one film per filmmaker or whatever, right? And okay. so uh, Nightmare on Elm Street was my Wes Craven. So I could not add Halloween, which would have been right. lower because I prefer Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, but Nightmare on Elm Street is brilliant, dude. And, and, and a lot of people find that movie kind of cheesy now. They like it because of what Freddy became. He became this kind yes. of like... Welcome to prime time, bitch. Yeah, you know, like that exactly. kind of a thing. Goofy character. Yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah, in yeah. the first one, man, he has like accordion arms in like the alley. 
that's like freaky as shit to me, dude. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, I know it's like clearly fake, but it's that whole idea of like, I can't comprehend what's going on right now, especially since a few seconds later, he's slashing this poor young lady open on this fucking ceiling. Like, it's I mean, unreal. It's so intense. Unreal. Yeah. It's, so it's, I want to throw two other movies at you go for it. that I love. Um, American Psycho. I absolutely love. And while that's not a horror movie, but rather a psychological exploration of um, human beings at their worst, love it. And then uh, shout out to Tucker and Dale versus evil. I mean, Tucker and Dale is like (laughs) tremendous. If people haven't seen that, in fact, you know what? I'll throw another one. Cabin in the Woods is fantastic. If people watch Cabin in the Woods, Tucker and Dale versus evil and American Psycho, um, Probably going to be uh, if you choose those for date night. There's going to be some ups and some downs, um, and a second date might not happen. But you're going to have a great night enjoying those films, regardless. I will say this: uh, What were the three again, real quick? What was the first one uh, American Psycho? Okay, American Psycho. I haven't seen in forever. That's one I've wanted to revisit. And I keep forgetting about it. I need to like. I need, I need to remember that one. Uh, Tucker and Dale, very fun. I saw that the year it came out, um, and it's it, last I knew it was on Netflix, so you can check that out. De- like a parody on horror movies, um, and I, I, I like the twist that they do, and and yep. and the villain, like the the villain or <laughs> like the teenager or whatever he's supposed to be, is like the most quintessential, like how we now think of people from the eighties eighties villains. Do you get what I mean? So, yeah, <laughs> but in like a, I mean that in a, as a compliment. <laughs> like it's really funny. But I'm going to ask you a question about Cabin in the Woods. What do you find so spectacular about Cabin in the Woods, in your opinion? Okay. In my opinion, what um, what was so spectacular about Cabin in the Woods was how it threw me for a loop in that I expected it was going to be a cabin in the woods, like the Evil Dead, that was... Um, not that the Evil Dead is predicted. I mean, the Evil Dead is like another one that's just like top notch. I mean, like top notch of all time. But I expected it was going to be an offshoot of the Evil Dead. And then it was like super natural creatures and fantastical situations and this almost like like sinister comic side. And it was, uh, you know, the typical teens lost in the woods 80s kind of theme, but at the same time creative and bizarre and just funny and scary and unusual it was just completely unexpected completely threw me a curveball you know i'm gonna i'm gonna add my opinion in here and then i'm gonna tell the listeners if you agree or disagree hit me up austin glidden at austin glidden on twitter you can just hit me up directly and just be like greg knows more than you um but (laughs) (laughs) because i was in grads or no no no, i was in undergrad when that movie came out and by the time i got to grad school um now understand this i went to grad school i studied film and then i went and got my comm degree which is how i teach like public speaking and stuff so um when i was studying film i was with a lot of production folks now a lot of these production folks didn't give a fuck about watching movies they just wanted to make them which makes no sense to me um i feel like you have to see this shit uh, I don't know. I'm going to get on a soapbox again. But anyways, the point is, I can save that for the outro. <laughs> but uh, you have to watch stuff. But it, like, even though it was like two years later, a year later, because uh, that movie came out in 2012, uh, Cabin in the Woods. So um, I think it was, yes, this would have been 2013. Um, all of the production students loved this movie because it was basically they're taking... 
um, their whole thing was like, man, they're taking all these tropes and they're kind of like, like drawing attention to them or like turning them on their head, right? Now I'll say this, the last 20 or 30 minutes where they actually get underground and they're in that crazy place, that's badass. Dude, Yeah, I love that. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But watching the first hour or whatever, I just kept thinking of all of the other movies that did this better, and I don't like Joss Whedon. <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. So I think that might be part of it. I'm just not a fan of how he directs or writes uh, that much. I don't hate him or anything, nothing like that. Um, I just I don't love him. Um, but have you? Did you see like New Nightmare, like the Wes Craven? Uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, like the seventh movie or whatever. <laughs> I don't know if I saw the seventh one. I know my friend Cameron and I were watching them all in order at one point, but I don't think we got to New Nightmare. New Nightmare was like the second one Wes Craven did. He did the first one. He came back for the seventh one. And the seventh one like does that. Th- it, it does what Scream later does, but just like earlier, you know, like Scream, of course, takes it further. Um, but there are like so many horror movies that did the thing. And I, I love hearing like that cabin in the woods did, but I love hearing other people's opinions because I'm open-minded. I want to like love this movie. I want to understand it. I just like, can't get into it until like the last 30 minutes. And I don't know th- why. Well, the last 30 minutes are, are bonkers. I think that, um, I think that again, I was so expecting something else that in the first large chunk of the film, I was like, this isn't quite what I expected. What's what, what is the deal here? What's this all about? In fact, from the very beginning of the film, I was like, what, what is happening? Uh, something about it made me confused in a good way. So I think that's what I liked about it is that it just wasn't what I expected. Um, and it caught me off guard. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I mean the last 30 minutes though are just bananas. So wild. Yeah. And, and I, I'm curious your thoughts on this and I might start wrapping this up here, but um, your thoughts on this, uh, take hardcore, for example, and I'm going to assume that you've listened to a lot of hardcore records. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just, uh, you know, shooting from the hip here. I'm just going to assume that you've listened to a lot of hardcore records. Um, so are you the type of person that, that the more and more and more hardcore you hear, begins to develop a certain standard or or framework in you that as you listen to it it's not that you listen to someone and go that's bad like I, i'm i'm not talking about being snobby about this but i'm talking about personally in your own life like when you're listening to all of these hardcore bands for example you hear the ones that really stand out that are that are the stars right these are these are the the top tier and you're like you can identify why in large part because you've heard the other bands that don't make top tier and you can see where those things maybe don't work as much which makes the top tier even more like even better are you that type of person or would you categorize yourself as i see beauty in all of these and i choose to find and pick out uh, those nuggets of uh, either truth or, or, or what's done right in these, and I just kind of love it all. What, how would you categorize yourself with hardcore? I'm going to say the second without the seeing beauty in all of these parts. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of times that I'm just like, ah, oh, my gosh, I can't even with this. Um, and, and oddly enough, I, I find myself m- more often than not, and this has always been true of me, not listening to as much music as I 
should, meaning there have been tours where I'll go out on a spoken word tour and drive halfway across the country and back and do uh, 20 shows and never once listen to music in the car, yeah. like by myself driving around. I'm just thinking, you know, and on tour oftentimes it's thinking and that kind of thing. Um, and not philosophically, but just like pondering yeah. life, you know, um, I'll forget to turn the radio on or something. My wife will be in the car and we'll just be in silence. And my mind is going, dude. Love like it. I'm thinking, Love it. I'm like working through shit. I, I could be writing a song in my brain, like whatever it is, yep. like I'm doing it. And eventually she'll just be like, <laughs> it's just like turn something on. Cause it's just for her. It's like awkward silence and not awkward, yeah. but like, you know, like I want something else, but I'm dude, I love finding sure. thinkers like that. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, oftentimes when I am listening to music, I'm, I'm listening to classical music. My mom uh, was heavily into classical music, continues to be, and and sort of raised me just listening casually to classical music. So I listen to a lot of classical music. Um, but then, yeah, I, I do see and hear and seek out the quote unquote, the good parts, the interesting parts, the the passionate parts, the driving intense parts, or the God awful, terrible parts of the things that I listen to. And then every once in a while, something will hit and I'll just be like, Oh man, that I want to listen yeah. to that over and over and over and over and over and over again. Um, you know, and whether that's a band or a style, you know, I'm not, you know, ever exactly sure, but, um, most definitely, uh, it's just hit or miss sometimes random the way it, yeah. it, it affects me. Um, like I've recently been having this whole Renaissance on, on the hate thousand scene. Um, I don't know what you know of hate thousand. It was, a um, in, in Belgium in the nineties, there was this tremendous ups, uptick upsurge that, that even doesn't do it justice. There was an immense hardcore scene in Belgium in the nineties of bands called the hate thousand. Um, hate thousand was a reference to the, uh, the area code of their, or the zip code as it were of their, their local, you know, area of Belgium. And, uh, that, that I think was 8,000 and they called themselves hate thousand. But anyway, point is, is that, you know, everyone talks about New York hardcore. Everyone talks about this type of hardcore, that type of hardcore based on geography. And because of a book that came out um, uh, last year about the 8,000 scene, people more who didn't before are talking about 8,000 hardcore. Uh, but it was its own thing. It was a substantial presence, and certainly in Europe, of this small area of Belgium that produced this tremendous amount of music. And I've been having this renaissance recently of listening to these bands like Liar and Congress and Sector. And there's a band called Deconsecrate that I've been listening to. And just, you know, just all these bands that are like these, what people might term metal, metal core bands, but they were their own scene. It's, it, it's kind of magic, like the connection of the scene to the community, to the Dude. style. It's pretty cool. You know, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's very cool, and you're you're touching on something I'm getting at because you're like the Hate Thousand and any of these other bands that you found that kind of fall into that category. They're they're bands that uh, have in some way changed your view of hardcore because it's at least at the very least it's expanded it, right? Um, like you've you've heard something maybe you haven't heard before, and it expands it. But here here's what I would challenge, and this gets back in the film too. Um, when you hear something like that, it doesn't mean that going back and listening to, um, I don't know, like a 1998 hate breed song. I don't know. I'm making something up, but like, whatever, like just some, some record from, from then, uh, it doesn't make it less interesting for you to listen to, whether it be nostalgia or you just love it. But whenever you're, when your horizons are expanded in that way, 
don't you feel that it can lessen the blow of some music you've heard because you are so much more moved by the hate thousand or, or, or whatever, whatever the thing is. I'm, I'm going to try sure. this in the movies, but I'll let you respond to that if you want to. Do you, yeah, do you? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- what you're talking about is if, 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 if I'm, if I'm thinking clearly is, is, is a historical revisionism, which is sort of looking at history through a present lens. So meaning this afternoon, I'm listening to this deconsecrate song, hate thousand band. I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is good. I'm, I'm really digging this. If you then played a band from let's say 20 years ago for me and I listened to it and I'm like, Oh wow, that's not, that's not as intense. I guess that wasn't as intense. I'm looking at that then through the lens now and making a determination about what that must have been given what this is now, when in actuality, 20 years ago, holy crap, that yeah. was the most intense thing in the world. Right? <laughs> so, so I think that I think it's important, at least for me, and I, well, I guess for anybody, but for me to, to, to constantly be wondering, like, if I'm going to make a judgment on something from the past, how I'm seeing it, why I'm seeing it that way. And I, I think that we, we often in hardcore, uh, revise history, um, based on what there is now, based on the developments that have happened, the styles and approaches people are taking to music. But the other side of the coin, and it's going to sound like I'm arguing both sides, is that we also do a pretty good job in hardcore of holding on to things from the past because they're good, because they're great. You know, there's a band called Nations on Fire from, 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 uh, you know, that same, not, not, you know, not 8,000 as much, but, you know, from, from Belgium who were tremendous, completely different style, who are a classic band in their own right, not because they sound like Deconsecrate today, but because they sounded like Nations on Fire then, if that yeah. makes, if that makes sense. Yeah yeah, you yeah. Know? yeah. yeah. No, I'm with you. So tying this into film, though, everything that you just said, all the things we were talking about, you know, whenever when I first started getting into film, I started consuming like crazy. But I didn't just start with, you know, uh, the big names of the time. I went straight to like the French New Wave, you know, what I mean, or like, uh, you know, I'm going into like, uh, you know, New Hollywood in the 70s or, or whatever. I'm, I mean, I'm really hitting these bangers, you know, Italian neorealism, like I'm just getting nerdy about it because I, I had never seen anything like I, I had seen Amelie first, which is the 2001, um, uh, French film. And that blew my mind. I'd never seen anything like it. And my buddy was like, dude, watch the French new wave, you know? And so then I started watching that shit I'd never seen before. So I'm like, American movies suck. So I just like watching you know, like Kurosawa's samurai movies and you know Fellini movie just all these killer foreign films and then I come back and I see Pulp Fiction for the first time which blew my fucking mind and then I start watching Coen Brothers shit you know like I'm watching all of this stuff but you know one of the things that I saw just as an example was something like Bonnie and Clyde from 1967 okay and uh Arthur Penn made that and that was that was like the turning point for New Hollywood that's that's um, you know, when, when that came out, the production code, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the, uh, it's, it was like federal, uh, censorship on films from 1934 to 1966. Um, and then they changed it over to a rating system after that. So, um, uh, in 1967, you know, you have, uh, the graduate, which was one, um, Bonnie and Clyde came out prior to that. Uh, prior to that, in 1966, you had Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, but that wasn't quite as big a movie. But the movie that really took off was Bonnie and Clyde. 
Now it's ultra violent for the time, um, very sexual for the time. I mean, just like a lot. Now I studied film history. I love historical evaluations of things. So I'm on your bus, like with the hardcore thing, man. Like I, I love that. So like looking at something like Bonnie and Clyde, though, I have to also accept that this movie is not as impactful as it was at the time. Now I can watch it for that time and be impressed looking at it yeah. in its context. But so many movies have come out and did what Bonnie and Clyde did way better. You know what I'm saying? And so mm-hmm. what sucks is then somebody that says something like that, uh, whether it's, you know, you're a heretic at that point or, um, or whatever, but like, there's like this kind of snobby aspect that comes to it. And it's like, I don't see it as that. I'm not telling you what you like's bad. I'm not saying, oh, you like that. You're stupid. No, it's just I want people to like what they like. But I think that the the best uh, thing to do is also broaden your horizons. You know, I I had never there. There's a movie called Dancer in the Dark. Have you seen that one? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just gonna keep I'm just gonna keep throwing them till they stick. Dancer in the Dark's from 2000. Bjork is actually the uh, the main actress in it. She vowed to never work again because like Kubrick and Shelley Duvall. Uh, she went through a lot of shit going through that movie. Um, but Lars von Trier, uh, filmmaker from Denmark, created it. And it's a musical, but it's not like what you'd think. Um, it's like weird, like Bjork music, you know, and all the actors actually sing their parts. Um, I probably to this day, I don't know if I've seen a movie that has affected me, has crushed me more than that one. Now, is it the best film I've ever seen? No. But emotionally, it crushes me, crushes me. Because it's about this woman played by Bjork who's losing her eyesight and her son is going to have the same genetic complication with his eyesight and she is trying to raise money however she can in order to get him a surgery so he will not end up like that. But she has to go to really dark places and she does a lot of dark things. She's the most innocent character. It's a part of um, a trilogy. None of the movies are connected called the Golden Heart Trilogy. All three of the movies are about these really innocent people that are forced into really fucked up situations. Um, so fun for the whole family. But Dancer in the Dark, um, I can't I can't suggest or recommend that movie enough. I really love that one. But when I saw that, the whole point, bring that up. When I saw that and it crushed me, okay, I go back and watch a movie that crushed me 10 years prior or something. And it just doesn't do the deed anymore because I've experienced that depth of emotion, that level of filmmaking that transports you to a place that you can't just go. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just find that it's it kind of like this um, standard that is almost created. Uh, and it's all personal. Like your standard will look different than mine, right? Um, and and you know uh, how things affect us. Um, but I'm like a huge advocate for people finding that standard and really building it up because mm. I look at movies that come out today and I find so many of them substanceless. And it doesn't mean that I can't enjoy them. Of course I can. You know what I mean? Um, but I I I I just go back to the John Cassavetes thing we were talking about. Sometimes I just want to dance in the dark. You know what I mean? Just crush me. <laughs> and I yeah. can't remember well, the last movie I saw that was recent. I, and there probably is one, and I think you're about to probably tell me one, that really crushed me. What were you going to say? Uh, Antichrist? I saw Antichrist. Actually, the guy that did Antichrist did Dance in the Dark. 
There's, yeah, exactly. There's yeah. the through so line. That's why, there that's why I brought it up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I own that one. That one's intense. Um, <laughs> but it, it, I, I don't know if it crushed me as much as it impresses me in different ways. Um, but like okay. a movie like Marriage Story. Did you see that? I did not. Just write it down, buddy. <laughs> it's on Netflix. It's by Noah Baumbach. Uh, he did The Squid and the Whale, and he worked with Wes uh, Anderson. He wrote some of his movies. Um, and uh, Noah Baumbach did Marriage Story. Now, I've been through a divorce, right? And I'm extreme. I'm friends with my ex-wife. My wife is friends with my ex-wife. I'm friends with her new husband. We're a great, like, she's... Uh, like my dad's still kind of her dad. All, you know what I mean? Like we, we have a great uh, relationship and our daughter's doing great and it's awesome, right? Um, but uh, I've been through the divorce, the most traumatic experience of my life. I went through a lot of shit and I watched Marriage Story and the whole movie is about this couple trying to be civil, dealing with how they're going to take care of their kids, but they're getting a divorce. One of them doesn't want it, one of them does, and they struggle back and forth. And it's kind of funny at times and it's, uh, <clears throat> and it's kind of uh, quirky, and it's very sad at times, and it runs the whole gamut. It's Adam Driver and uh, Scarlett Johansson are like the leads in it. Uh, I can't stress that one enough. If you're, I feel, <laughs> Greg, I feel like I'm setting you up for the a an irreversible trip to Bummerville. Okay? <laughs> 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 like most of my suggestions are going to be the saddest shit. But I'm an emotional guy, and I like to feel emotions. Any movie that makes me feel something, even if it pisses me the fuck off, if you make me feel something, I can uh, I find value in that movie, right? Um, and so make me sad, uh, and I'm I'm cool with it. And I just find that a lot of movies that I really like just so happen to do that. I have talked a lot. Do you have anything to say about that whole vomit that I just <laughs> released to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Have you seen a movie from the 1960s called The Pawnbroker? Dude, that is on my list. That is a Sidney Lumet movie. I haven't seen it, though. Correct. Tell me about it. Well, I'm just, I don't want to say much other than watch The Pawnbroker and watch it from the perspective that we're talking about. If you watch it from the perspective of these movies that have bummed me out and have been intense and have been heavy are where it's at. And something that came 60 years ago could not possibly be as intense or, you know, as powerful because of the filmmaking techniques that were used back then. I would say throw that out the window and watch The Pawnbroker mm -hmm. for what it is. And I think it'll be, uh, as you say, a trip to Bummerville. Um, no, it'll be um, it'll be it'll be impactful. It's an incredible film. I actually just watched it recently. So it falls right in line with what you're talking about with some of these these modern films that have the same effect. Yeah, anytime I have a guest on, I did this with uh, Bane. Uh, anytime they recommend a movie, I have like a letterbox list for you. That if you don't know what letterbox is, it's a website, and you can like rate things. You can make lists, and you can do all these cool things. It's really awesome. I'm probably gonna text you about it. Anyway, please do, please do. <laughs> um, but I have like a whole list of like guests have suggested I see these movies, and um, I already have the pawnbroker on a list. But I'm gonna throw it in that one because I often prioritize those. Um, Greg, we've we've talked for a long time. This has been fantastic. That's not a complaint. I am I could keep going, man. Um, I'm so thrilled that you were in the Beast Within, a Gabriel Knight mystery, and uh, that still thrills me to this day. Um, I expect to see a picture in my phone uh, when you text me of you as a juggler in high school. Okay, um, I want that. Uh, I'm recapping here. Um, 
And yeah, like, uh, you know, give your mom a big hug and thank her for me that, you know, you uh, genetically were enhanced by her, by her great communication skills. And uh, Greg, I can't say anything else, but thank you. And this has been an absolute pleasure, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been amazingly fun. And if people want to get in touch anytime, they can do that on Instagram. I'm at Greg Benick, or they could get in touch through my website, gregbenick.com, or they could uh, just yeah find me through your you know through through you if they choose. But I would love to talk about any of the ideas that we talked about um, from coin collecting to the Beast Within. I watched the Beast Within scene in between us <laughs> recording the halves of this podcast. I did send it to him, everybody. <laughs> yep. And, and I had forgotten a couple things. I had completely forgotten those costumes because I think what happened now that I remember, talk about historical revision. Oh, it's not really, it's just forgetting over, over yeah. time. I think I came with the white puffy costume and came out with that. And the director was like, no, 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 we've got this. We've got costumes for you. And then put us in makeup and those, uh, I'm colorblind, but red costumes, I believe, um, and I forgot how casual it was almost. There's like us dropping while juggling and picking it up. And they must have shot all afternoon and just, yeah. I mean, it was ultimately a Kubrick technique to get us to be exhausted <laughs> and drop the juggling props. Yeah. It's but funny anyway. to be a juggler and be like, all right, now I need you to be bad at it. Okay. Like, please <laughs> just drop. I think that's what them. they were trying to do. Like, just having it be slightly goofy. But anyway, I watched it and I'm like couldn't believe it anyway i'm so glad i'm so glad that you watched it um how you feel about this did you have a good time oh i love i mean the podcast the podcast has been great absolutely it's been tremendous i mean i (laughs) i i'm excited to hear what people's reactions are to some of the things we said me too i'm begging for compliments here but thank you so much (laughs) yeah i loved it All right, that was this week's episode. Thank you guys for putting up with another replay, folks. That was really fun. Again, I'm going to be talking about some 2022 films coming up here soon. Crimes of the Future by David Cronenberg, Alex Garland's new film Men, uh, Cha-Cha Real Smooth, Flux Gourmet, uh, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. That will be a lot of fun. There's also a bunch of other stuff that's available to me that I can watch now because it's on streaming services and things, things that I missed out on. Uh, There's some films like Gold, Uh, which didn't do great. Like, there isn't a huge, you know, uh, critical success kind of thing behind it. Um, Or even uh, a ton of people tell me about it. But a few people have been like, dude, just please watch it. Like, I think it's kind of, I think it's a lot better than people think. And, uh, you know, stuff like The House, which came out way, way earlier this year. You have Jen Apatow's The Bubble, um, Death on the Nile. Um, I got to watch some uh, Leslie, uh, I said Leslie Nielsen. (laughs) Uh, but I got to watch some uh, Liam Neeson, rather, uh, action movies. He has a, cu- a couple coming out here soon. Uh, well, he has one that's out, and then uh, another one either just came out or it's coming out here soon. But either way, though, I have some stuff. I'm going to get back to 2022 here soon, uh, and we're going to actually keep doing 80s marathon stuff. So that's going to be fun. All of that and more. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I love you guys. Good night. Good luck. And take it easy.